spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. You know, we did that whole thing there with uh, Thomas and he didn't say Bosch once. He's meant to say Bosch. We'll have to do that tomorrow. Uh, coming up, of course, uh, we now have uh, the world of common sense coming home uh, on a Monday morning from 10 o'clock to you, uh, right into your bedrooms, into your living rooms, into your car, uh, into your ears, into your eyes, whatever you like. Uh, here we are with the home of common sense with the one place we get the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth a couple of things to mention of course uh, there's an awful lot to talk about when it comes to the migrant problem the migrant crisis we've had uh, people dying in the channel this weekend we've had people moved out of the Bibby Stockholm on Friday possibly being moved back in today uh, we've got a home office report which says basically uh, that this is going to go on for years and years and years possibly as many as five years we've got uh, international legal experts saying this is a worldwide problem we can't just solve it Uh, in Britain alone. Uh, We've got all sorts of reasons why. There is now an absolute and utter necessity for somebody smart to come up with an idea. And don't worry, here I am. I've already had the idea. The only way to stop this from happening is to stop the boats from coming. Don't wait for them to get halfway across the channel to push them back. Don't wait for them to land at Dover to fly people to a country where they don't want to go. Just stop the boats from leaving France altogether. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. We keep hearing from people why something can't be done. Well, why? Tell me. Pray. Can you not just puncture every single dinghy that you see ever trying to get into the water? Because if there are no dinghies, there are no means of transport for these people to come. There are no ways to get the traffickers to put people into boats in a dangerous manner. There are no ways and means of the people coming on little boats to this country. You simply have a a, a patrol of people either with pistols or whatever you want to what do you whatever want to use dark guns uh, knives whatever it is puncture every single boat that gets anywhere near the water and after a while they'll just stop this will go this is a pointless activity what we now know is that some people who get taken back uh, and put into detention by the french authorities come straight out of detention and go straight back to the beach to get on another boat you know there is no way that that system that i've just said would work would work there's absolutely no question about it If you've got no boat, you can't get in it. Simple. How is it so difficult for the government to work this one out? 0344 499 1000. I'm delighted to say Brendan Chilton uh, makes his return to the Independent Republic. I don't know what happened. We haven't had him on for a while. He's the CEO of Independent Business Network, of course. We're going to get his view because he's down in Kent, knows an awful lot of the businesses down there, knows an awful lot of the people down there, knows an awful lot of the problems that there are in social services down there as a result of the continuing influx of illegal migrants. And we also know, of course what the problems are with the government and with the opposition because nobody wants this to be solved it seems to me and it can be solved and we will sit here and take your views on it and solve it meanwhile over the course of the weekend there were more protests down in Fenetley uh, more protests down in Bexhill more protests in other parts of the country we're hearing uh, there might be one at RAF Scranton as well where people basically don't want migrants moving into their towns and taking over hotels it's as simple as that, ladies and gentlemen. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk about the NHS as well, because that doctor who was interviewed by Julie Hartley Brewer, good to see her back, by the way, absolutely incredible. A man who clearly makes in excess of £60,000 a year. He's married to another doctor who makes in excess of £60,000 a year. £120,000 together. Uh, they can't afford lunch, apparently. Well, you don't have to go to the Savoy every day, mate. You know, just pop down to Cabby's Rest. They'll give you egg and chips for about seven quid. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Peter Hitchens is here as well. Uh, ben Habib too. Loads going on. We need your views and your calls because we take your views and we amplify them to the powers that be. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Welcome on a Monday morning to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's not particularly beautiful out there, but you know, There's something to be said for having cooler nights and being able to sleep without having to put fans on and air conditioning units and all the rest of it. And if you really want to go away somewhere hot, then go away somewhere hot. 
Kevin O'Sullivan's done that. He's having a lovely holiday, finally, a couple of weeks away. It'll do him the world of good. And you go away to the Mediterranean. There was a time when you would go away to the Mediterranean because you wanted to have a heat wave. You wanted to lie on a beach. You wanted to have a sunbed by a swimming pool. We're not supposed to be doing that here. So I don't mind having cooler nights, actually. But let's talk to Brendan Chilton, uh, CEO of the Independent Business Network, of course. Brendan, very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. Now, I, I can't explain why I haven't spoken to you for so long. I suddenly had a conversation with Aaron the other day and I said, well, why, what's going on with Brendan Chilton? Let's get him on. So very good to see you. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, and I apologise for not having you on. I don't, we've just, it's been one of those, you know, we're gonna, you know what's going to happen after sort of 2023. You're going to go, I don't know what happened in 2023, but it was a mad year. Yeah. It's completely crazy. You know, we had all sorts of things going on. I mean, the, 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 the migrant policy and the migrant story that you and I have been talking about for years and years and years has suddenly exploded into the general sort of media arena and the public consciousness and now the story that only we used to talk about is is front page news leading the news on 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 itv and the bbc you know why did it take them so long do you think well i've now got something to talk to people about at dinner parties Mm. because everyone else is talking about it (laughs) (laughs) Um, it don't feel so much about a sort of left out person um i think the key issue here is you know the government has systematically failed uh, to tackle this problem uh, as you said mike now for years we've been talking about this a yeah. uh, very interesting statistic for you it is costing five thousand pounds a minute to house migrants coming across the channel uh, in hotels and of course at the moment uh, you mentioned i'm down here in kent kent county council has a legal action against the home office uh, because there is a dispute at the moment over where un uh, sort of migrant children that come here alone are being accommodated right. and at the moment Kent is accommodating all of them right. uh, at the cost well, of I the remember, Kent taxpayers. I remember about two years ago Kent Social Services were already in a crisis because they had too many young migrants uh, to look after so m- they must be now dealing with about 10 times that number. Well, it, it, the, the county council is, is dealing with extraordinary numbers and it's got to make as well around £80 million worth of savings to close its budget. So it's a really precarious position for them to be in. Um, unfortunately, though, this problem, as you said, it shows no sign of going away. And the only way uh, we're going to tackle this is, is, as you said, if we tackle the problem at source and we stop those boats entering the channel. Um, whether that's in the more robust manner uh, you suggest with, you know, potato guns popping the boats or whether we have to have uh, police patrols up and down those beaches. I read this morning, actually, that the uh, French police patrols have decreased this summer uh, because quite a large number of uh, French police are on leave at the same time. And so while the numbers overall are coming down gradually, that critical infrastructure, uh, the combination of patrols, deterrence, is still not in place. And we've been talking about this now for at least four years. Right. And isn't it interesting that today, of all days, just when you thought there wasn't enough to talk about with the tragedy that happened over the weekend, uh, six migrants dying in the channel in France, a lot of people basically saying to me, I don't know why they ended up rescuing the people from that boat and bringing them to Britain when it happened so close to the French coast. That's another another uh, situation altogether. But now the Home Office p- leaked paper sort of comes out in which the Home Office, who we know is not fit for purpose, say, oh, this will go on for at least another five years. Well, you know, it's their job to stop it. You know, it's not their job to do a report to say we can't stop it. Well, uh, the Home Office, it beggars belief how that is still a government department has been scrapped and split up because it's presided over failure after failure. Uh, It is unacceptable uh, for them to say that this is going to be with us for years. The British people want action to happen now. Um, And unfortunately, we're not seeing that. Uh, Again, the the sinking of the boat, uh, the six people that that, uh, capsized uh, in the channel this week is just another example of how Mm. dangerous this is. And all the while these crossings are being allowed to take place, uh, the risk of loss of human life uh, continues. Um, We've we've got these now barges uh, that are coming up, but I understand there are problems with fire safety uh, on those barges. I mean, really, 
the uh, proverbial, you know, couldn't organise a what's it in a brewery, yes. uh, really is, uh, I think, people's views of how this government's dealing with this crisis at the moment. But this is the trouble, isn't it? Because you've got people blaming the government for this. And yes, the government should be able to find a solution. But, you know, the reason why uh, these people are dying in the channel is because of unscrupulous gangsters who are running human trafficking rings and making millions and millions of pounds a day, forcing uh, 70 people into a boat that's only really designed to hold 20 refusing to give them life jackets, refusing to do anything other than take their money and give no um, indication or, uh, or, uh, or sort of guarantee that they even get to their destination without dying. Why do these lefties not blame the traffickers? Why do they blame the government? Well, the, the interesting point here, Mike, is if you remember a few years ago when we had the, the boat that sank, and I think about 20 or 30 people sadly drowned in the channel, the very next day, uh, the British government and the French government rounded up uh, half a dozen human traffickers uh, and did it instantly, which suggests that we may know who some of these traffickers are, yeah. in which case, why are we allowing them to be on the streets now? Uh, round them up, clamp them in irons and throw away the key. Uh, they should not be allowed to be trafficking human cargo. It's a modern slave trade right. uh, that's going on because many of these people that arrive in Britain, unfortunately, do disappear into society, end up in low paid jobs, sex work, drug work, etc. Mm. And so it is a modern slave trade. Uh, and it's shameful. Uh, that at the moment it seems as though the British authorities and French authorities are not clamping down on these human traffickers. These human traffickers exist. They've got ID cards. They will have passports. They will have bank cards. They will have national insurance numbers or the continental equivalent. If the banks can see vast sums of money going into these people's accounts from places such as Greece and Italy and Turkey and North Africa, um, that is suspicious. Uh, and should warrant investigation. Mm. The bank should be working with governments uh, in those areas to find out where that money is coming from, who these people are, and how we can get them arrested if they're committing human trafficking. Yeah, exactly right. Because at the end of the day, the very act of, of being trafficked is being used by some people as a reason why they must be allowed to stay here. So it's a sort of self-fulfilling crime, which not only has uh, as a reward at both ends, because the guy providing you uh, with the crime in the first place gets money. You then get here having committed a crime to get here and are then given asylum because apparently you have committed a crime against. You know, the whole thing stinks. And it just seems to me, I was thinking about this on the way in today, Brendan, we just have to be cleverer, don't we? Because these asylum seekers are obviously quite clever people. The, uh, the the traffickers are obviously quite clever people. The lawyers that they're hiring are quite clever people. They're all getting around the law. And then once again, the taxpayer is the one getting stopped. They are. And, you know, I, I represent businesses. Also, businesses are being hit by this. Uh, from within uh, four miles of where I'm sitting at the moment, there are three hotels uh, that are full to the rafters, unable to trade commercially uh, because the Home Office has just swooped in and said, we need these premises uh, to house uh, migrants crossing the channel. And so they're unable to operate in the normal fashion as a, a hotel business would. And so it's not just the taxpayer that's suffering, businesses are as well. And as I mentioned earlier on, mm. the people of Kent are paying a particular price uh, for the uh, problems that the county is facing. I think you're right. We do need to be cleverer at this. Uh, as we discussed before, uh, the gang leaders were picked up once or twice before when we had the uh, last tragedy in the channel. Uh, the government has pumped inordinate amounts of money, essentially fortifying Calais uh, with walls and wire fencing, and it still hasn't worked. And so perhaps uh, the only option now, as you say, is we need... Uh, much more rigorous operations on the beaches of northern France, uh, physically stopping these boats entering the channel. There is only a certain uh, distance uh, off the French coast where you can actually cross uh, from France to Britain before you enter into much rougher seas. Yeah. If we can patrol those areas, we can stop the boats crossing. Yeah, it's so it's so straightforward. It always is whenever we talk to anyone with common sense. Um, wish you were in the government, Brendan. Stay where you are, though. We've got to talk <laughs> about the NHS. The doctor strikes are ongoing. Day four, by the way. So I'm sure they're probably all even now thinking about maybe getting away from the pool and packing up for the day and flying back because obviously they've all been away on long, lovely weekends in sunnier climes than here. Uh, this is Talk TV. More uh, with myself and Brendan Chilton coming next. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, we are here, of course, all the way through until one o'clock. Uh, Rob in Somerset says this, Mike, someone else you haven't had on your show for a long time is Jamie Jenkins. He's the only one who can make any sense of the stats that keep being touted by experts from the various organisations and do-gooders, not to mention the government. Uh, thanks very much indeed, Rob. Well, you'll be pleased to know that actually Jamie Jenkins is on today. Um, he hasn't been on for maybe a couple of weeks, but we've had him on not that long ago, I don't think. But we will be continuing to bring you a vast and a a, a delicious array of different voices and different people because that's what we do here because we like, unlike some places, to hear from people with different opinions. We're talking right now to Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. And Brendan, I just want to play a little clip from uh, Julia's show this morning uh, where she, int- uh, she interviewed an NHS registrar uh, who's on strike because apparently uh, he wants to help the NHS get more improvements. And he also says that he doesn't make enough money. Here he goes, Benedict Phillips. Um, a lot of us are struggling, really struggling. Um, my my wife is a gastroenterologist and she has to walk dogs as a second job. I've had to find an alternative um, income. Um, I've had to skip meals uh, between surgeries, uh, skip lunches, because it's just unaffordable. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, this guy should be uh, heading up Jack and Ori, shouldn't he? I mean, first of all... Um, he doesn't look very much like the sort of doctors that you would expect to see in the hospital. But if he is a registrar, uh, we've checked this. He's on minimum 51,000 a year. Uh, if she's a gastroenterologist, she's on something around about 60. So what he's telling me is that between them, on 110,000 a year, he can't afford to pop out to the sandwich shop for an egg mayonnaise vegan special. My heart bleeds. It I know. really does. Um, I, uh, I wish I suffered the malnutrition that he did. It would do me the world of good. <laughs> um, I think there is um, a serious argument, though, for just for a moment, about some of those, uh, not just in the NHS, but also in other parts of the public sector and in business, on much lower wages uh, than 50 or 60,000. And the tax burden that we're currently facing at the moment. Uh, I know everyone talks about inflation as a driver of the cost of living uh, and people going on strike as a result of their wages not covering everything. If we looked at the other end of the spectrum and if government cut taxes uh, rather than continuing to increase them, that would also help people at the moment. And perhaps then those striking would feel as though they had more disposable income and wouldn't necessarily feel the need to strike. Yes. Well, I mean, I think the trouble is, though, that we know many, many doctors are not striking in the same way that many nurses during the RCN strikes of, of months ago were also not striking. So it's not really about the NHS. It's not really about the paying conditions. It's about a very left wing extremist union organisation that wishes to go to war with the government. You know, one of the uh, the chiefs at the BMA was interviewed over the weekend because they've accepted a 12 percent pay rise in Scotland. And he was quoted as saying, we will not accept that in England because it's a different government. I mean, that's, those are his words, not mine. And so, you know, that the BMA is, is ideologically opposed to the Tory government. And also this story about them all threatening that they have to go to Australia to work. You know, one of the reasons that they get paid better in Australia is it's a private healthcare system. But they're quite happy to go and work in that. But they're desperately trying to stop the British healthcare system from becoming privatised. Funny that. Well, one of the things I think we need to have a serious debate about, Mike, in this country is whether or not we can afford the NHS as it currently stands. Um, The reality of the situation is our economy isn't growing fast enough, uh, yet the medical needs, particularly the elderly generation, are getting far more complex. uh, And at the moment, we've also got a crisis in social care. Um, And I think we're streeting uh, Labour's uh, shadow spokesman on health has said that uh, an incoming Labour government would have to look to the private sector Mm. to help alleviate the backlogs in the NHS. And the next Labour government would be looking sensibly, in my view, to have more private sector involvement in healthcare delivery, uh, because the current model, uh, I'll say, is not sustainable. Uh, We cannot afford the NHS as it is with our so uh, poor and pathetic levels of growth. Um, because the demands is far outstripping supply. Um, I I feel for anyone that uh, feels as though they are struggling with the cost of living. I don't necessarily think the guest on Julia's show earlier on uh, was a good example. 
of someone uh, struggling with the cost of living. Um, I think we need to look at the amount of people are being taxed. I think we need to look at how this government can drive growth in the economy and alternative healthcare yeah. models if we're to have this in the future. I think an alternative healthcare model would be to strip out all of the people who work in the NHS who are not needed, uh, who do not do clinical jobs, who are not at the front end of delivering healthcare because the amount of money going in is prodigious. It's never been higher, 200 billion a year, and yet apparently they haven't got enough. And it's very clear to me that anybody with half a brain and a good accountant could walk straight into the NHS and deliver about probably £50 billion worth of savings overnight by stripping out all the stuff they don't need to do. Well, the unfortunate thing, Mike, is at an election, and I say this as someone that supports the Labour Party, is the NHS becomes a football. Which party can spend more money on the NHS and therefore appear more just and noble in the eyes of the public? What a good election campaign would do is both parties saying, actually, this is how we're going to restructure the NHS. This is how we're going to bring in more private sector involvement. This is how we're going to cut out some of those non-jobs uh, that you've just spoken about there. And this is how we're going to get a healthier society. Society. We should have a far more grown-up debate about how we provide healthcare in this country rather than the Tories saying, well, we're going to invest £20 billion, and then Labour saying, well, we're going to interest £21 billion. Yeah. Uh, It really is infantile. Uh, and frankly, I think the public are sick of it. All I know, Mike, is that when I want to get a GP appointment, I can't, yes. uh, which is why I've had to go private, uh, because our local services down here, you simply cannot get to see a GP. Right. And that is the big problem. You know, we have a country now which is largely, um, shall we say, inefficiently working, if working at all. You know, we're it's told clapped that out. It's clapped out, you know. And, and I mean, I know that your, your, your background is working with the Labour Party. Um, I don't know what your view is of the Keir Starmer kind of plan, uh, which I'll ask you about in a minute. But it seems to me that we've got a vast array of public services for which we seem to be paying more taxes and more money, but for which we're getting less in return. I entirely agree with you. Uh, I think the general feeling in this country at the moment is we've had it. Nothing works. Uh, you can't see a GP. You can't get a train because they're not operating. Uh, you can't buy. Sometimes in shops there are many shortages. Uh, sometimes you can't get in to uh, get an appointment round for someone to fix your phones or your, your plumbing or whatever. There is just a general malaise at the moment and i think it comes down to several key things we are overregulated, we are overtaxed and we haven't got growth in the economy and frankly no one in politics is prepared to stand up and deliver some hard truths to the british people namely there are things we can no longer afford because we haven't got the growth in our economy and we've allowed industry to be decimated uh, but frankly no one's prepared to do it no quite and finally we haven't got a great deal of time brendan but but uh, sir keir starmer is he making the right noises for you? Is he convincing you that he would do a better job? Well, I'm very pleased that he has indicated that ULES or the proposed rollout of ULES across the country uh, will not happen under a Labour government. Uh, I think it's madness. Except, to be imposing... except in London, of course. It's uh, in London, yeah. <laughs> so, for, for, uh, but it's a different category altogether, Mike. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but around the rest of the country, I'm pleased it's not going to be happening. Uh, you cannot tax people to net zero. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I think that ULES was the core reason why Labour didn't win the Uxbridge by-election. Uh, and if we have policies like that around the country, Labour won't win the next general election. We've got to go to where the people are. And that means we've got to... Uh, support them, not tax them, and find alternative ways uh, to make our country more green. I think we all want to live in a in a, a, a friendly, environmentally friendly country where we're not damaging our mm. country. Um, but you can't tax people to death uh, to get there. No, I couldn't agree more. Brendan, great to talk to you as ever. We'll get you back on soon, uh, sooner rather than later. Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. Great to have him back. A great thinker. Somebody uh, who is, you might say, on the slightly left side of politics, but who actually talks a great deal of sense and who understands that the working man and woman of this country needs support from whichever government it is, whether it be Labour, uh, whether it be Conservative, whether it be something in between, whatever it may be, you need to support the people. Remember what we talked about in the last half an hour. You know, the customer is not always right, but the customer at least should be pandered to and listened to. If you want to run a business, make sure the customers are happy. If you want to run a government, do what the people want. This is Talk TV. 
Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots of you sending me many, many messages. We will get to them and we'll get to your calls as well because don't forget, this is the one place where we hear your views and we amplify them and augment them uh, and we let other people hear them so that you can have your voice heard in this country because it's very important. Roger in Kingston-upon-Hull says, Morning Mike, can anyone tell me why it takes so long to process the illegal immigrants? What exactly is the process that takes so long? Well, I'll tell you what the process is that takes so long. Uh, it's a reluctance to to do it. I believe that people in the Home Office are not as useless as they make themselves out to be. We're supposed to believe that it takes one person claiming asylum uh, per week to get through the Home Office in uh, one um, worker. So, for example, if you're a caseworker, you are basically dealing with one case a week. That can't be right. Surely they should be doing at least 10 cases a day, for heaven's sake. How long does it take? You're in or you're out. Why does it take a week to do one? So I think the, the bottom line is, and the only conclusion you can draw sensibly, is that basically they don't want to make them happen. They don't want to make a decision because if you make a decision that says no, then they have to be kicked out. Whereas if you don't make a decision at all, they can stay. And I think that is the nefarious purpose of some of the people inside the Home Office who actually don't want to carry out government policy. That's what I think is going on. Uh, Chris in Horsham. Mike, I like bold moment. How about teaching doctors how to make their own sandwiches to take to work? Sorted. <laughs> we'll play you some more of that ridiculous clip a little bit later on. Uh, coming up, though, uh, we're going to talk about motoring because there's an extraordinary story past the desk this morning. And it's about driving and the standards of driving and how bad people now are at driving. And this will actually give you something to worry about, I think, because we've all driven out uh, of our heart, of our sort of uh, roads to find that some idiot's driving in front of you, doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't have any idea uh, how to turn left, how to turn right, how to indicate when to go at a roundabout. Well, it now turns out that more and more people are actually driving the wrong way on motorways, right? And that number has risen by 13% in a year. And you know what they're saying is the reason for it? People are literally staring into their sat-navs and just following what they think is the right way to go. And we've all been there. You know, those of us who are old enough to remember what it was like to drive before sat-navs, before smartphones, and you actually had to have directions and a proper map and an actual idea of where you were at any given time. You know when you sometimes see, coming up in 100 yards, turn left, and people are going, I don't know how far 100 yards is. And they turn left a bit early or a bit late or they have to do a U-turn. But this is quite worrying for me. Even Joe Shiner, the National Police Chief's Council lead for roads policing, uh, i.e. the police officer in charge of the roads, says it is concerning to see the number of incidents rising. Let's talk now to Ian Taylor, Director and Chairman of the Alliance of British Drivers, because this, I tell you, I kid you not, I mean, this is quite deadly. I mean, if you're driving on a motorway and there's somebody coming the other way, except you're on your side of the road, you know, that is cause for concern at the very least. Ian, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, I have to say, when I saw this story, I was quite shocked, but then I thought to myself... If I think about all the numbers of times that I drive now, and it's quite a lot because you can't get anywhere unless you drive, um, the standard of driving, I think, is, has grossly kind of fallen away. There's an awful lot of people who don't seem to know how to drive out there driving. Yes, it, it is quite worrying. Um, the, the, the Alliance of British Drivers um, stands for freedom for drivers, but it also stands for maintaining and improving the standard of driving yes. we believe in good driving we believe being a good driver is something one should be proud of um which means that uh, when people do stupid things um it puts me in a bit of an embarrassing position because i spend quite a lot of my life uh, defending drivers from attack um and then something like this happens and it looks as though i'm trying to defend the indefensible which i'm not going to do uh, now, as regards... Um, well, it's not your fault there are stupid people in the world, though, is it, Ian? Well, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but uh, so what, what it needs is for people to actually take more pride in their driving. Uh, now, as regards going the wrong way down a motorway, um, I won't say it's impossible to happen in certain conditions, but uh, it really, it should not happen uh, there may be some little things you could do to um, make it uh, less likely like uh, those big signs they have on american uh, freeways that say wrong way um but uh, apart from that um, 
people have got to keep their wits about yes. them, use common sense, and not, I can't emphasise this enough, not be enslaved to yes. their satin. I mean, I would say I'm, also... I'm that generation a... too that didn't used to use them. Right. But I would also say, as, as somebody who's driven a, a lot in lots of different countries, that the, the, the nighttime driving in this country has become quite difficult in many ways because of the lighting and because of the way that, that the lights seem to work and because of the roadworks and the flashing lights and the, the various different conings off of things. You know, if you're driving, you know, at late at night, I'm told by people who do it a lot, if you're on motorways where they close bits of it off and they take you off the motorway, bring you back on the motorway, and then they sometimes make you go uh, round a road a, a, way, a way that you wouldn't otherwise know, there's a lot of unfamiliarity, I suppose is what I'm saying. And an awful lot of the signage is quite difficult to read. That That is also true, not just in the dark, but if it's in the dark and, say, the driving rain as well, um, mistakes can happen. Yes. Um, but uh, as regards this, I'm interested in it being blamed on the sat-navs, I have to say. I'm not quite sure what the evidence is for that. Um, I'd be interested to hear more about it, but because um, I'm sure that's not the only reason. But... Um, more than anything else, um, really, um, if, if some of these people don't want to give the rest of us drivers a bad name, um, they need to keep their wits about them more, right. look at their screens less, and look at the road ahead more. Mm. I heard a very frightening um, uh, sort of statistic, which was only a statistic as far as I was told by somebody, um, that a lot of young people now are finding it so expensive to insure the car that they drive that they're just not bothering to get insurance. Because, for example, if you're a parent, and I'm one of them, that you want to get your 18-year-old uh, child a driving licence, if you want to insure them to drive the car with you in it, that's doable. But if you want to insure them to drive the car without you in it, it's some ridiculous amount of money, like five, six, seven thousand pounds £7,000. So an awful lot of people are now driving around without insurance. And that's a worry as well, isn't it? It is, especially if they're liable to hit you going the wrong way down a motorway. Well, exactly. <laughs> but then, OK, I can even going back to my youth, um, young people have always faced higher insurance premiums, uh, but probably not so much as they do now. It's gone to the point of being ridiculous. I'm sure a lot of young people are actually literally being priced off the road now. So although I certainly cannot condone driving without insurance, um, uh, part of me can understand why it happens. You mm. could regard it as a, a certain inevitability yes. about it. Well, should there not be an ev another way, though? I mean, I understand that, that the insurance companies worry about younger drivers driving unaccompanied and driving on their own. But other countries manage it. You know, they have a sort of a system in America where you're only allowed to drive, say, during the hours of daylight or you're not allowed to drive with another teenager in the car. You know, that kind of thing. Wouldn't that be better and actually something that you could then police, if you like, rather than charging people through the nose for, you know, their kids to learn how to drive? Well, um, of course, in America, in most parts of America, you can drive even younger than you can here. Yeah, 15 in some uh, cases. It's 15 in some states, 15 or 16. Mm. Um, they don't make you wait till you're 18. Right. Um, however, um, I'm wondering if it, how policeable it is, um, unless you're going to start stopping people willy-nilly, um, because... Uh, other teenagers well um, you can I can tell you the way it works in America because my, my kids lived and drive and drove there as well is you get a learner sticker if you like or a, a new driver sticker on the back of the car uh, and if it's spotted out over uh, a certain time of night like if it's if it's not allowed out after dark if it's after dark you please pull it over simple could make life awkward in winter when it gets dark very early not really because if they can't drive after dark they can't drive after dark I mean, whatever the time is, you know what I mean? It's a timing thing. If it's after 8 o'clock, it's after 8 o'clock. Whatever. It would, no, but the point I'm making here is it would prevent people in the middle of winter from using their car to go to and from their work. Well, I mean, yeah, but what I'm saying is, is that you, there is a way of doing it, though. If you said it was 8 o'clock, um, if you needed to get some kind of dispensation, you could. All I'm saying is, is that, you know, surely there is another way instead of the insurance companies forcing people to drive without insurance. Well, there could be. Um, once again, it's a, it, it would be, however, yet another irritating little set of rule and regulations. And I'm not sure if I'd be in favour if um, 
I was if I was an eighteen year old. You're, li- again. you're literally a, a, a libertarian driver. I mean, it'd be great if everybody was as sensible <laughs> as you, but unfortunately they're not. But Ian, listen, thank you very much indeed. Ian Taylor, director and chairman of the Alliance of British Drivers. Now, listen, um, I know that many of you will have stories to tell me about bad driving because I see it every single day. I got stuck behind somebody the other day who had one of these zip cars who clearly hadn't driven uh, in London ever. Um, the person driving, I could say she, because it was a woman, pulled out in front of me as I was going round a roundabout, clearly unaware that you're supposed to let the people on the roundabout go if they're coming from the right. She went right out in front of me. I was managing, I was able to stop. She then stopped in the middle of the roundabout uh, on the basis that she didn't know which uh, part of the roundabout she wanted to exit. That was also wrong. She then stopped in the wrong lane. She then tried to pull into the other. I mean, it was just a nightmare. And I was thinking to myself, you know, what on earth are you doing? And there are people now driving the wrong way up motorways because they don't know what they're doing. So I want to hear your stories. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We've got loads of you to talk to. We will do a lot of calls coming up next. We'll also talk some more about these ridiculous junior doctors. This is Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on today. There's still many, many questions to be asked, even though uh, we've been asking a lot of them over the course of the last two hours. Why, for example, would a junior doctor come on the television with Julie Hartley Brewer and say, despite the fact that he and his wife being doctors, can't afford to eat during the lunchtime period that he gets off? I don't think anybody believes it. I think it's a crock of nonsense. And everybody with a brain will go, sorry, mate, uh, you and your missus are earning between you minimum 120000 a year. If you can't afford a cheese and tomato sandwich for lunch, then you're doing something wrong. And maybe you have to give something else up, uh, like the uh, annual trips to the Seychelles, perhaps, maybe, something like that. Um, Mike, I've missed hospital appointments because the letter has taken six weeks to get to me, arriving after the appointment, says Pete, uh, in Bristol. I think we may have read that one out before. We've got lots of you telling us about appointments that have been wrong. Somebody who went to a hospital for for a piece of surgery, uh, but the hospital was shut due to a strike. I mean, this kind of behaviour is not acceptable. If you work in the NHS, you should be working in the NHS. It is, after all. Uh, here we go. Nasha, my son-in-law had a bad eye injury on Sunday. He went to Cheltenham uh, General Hospital A&E to find it closed because the doctors were on strike. Had to drive 10 miles to Gloucester uh, General Hospital uh, in agony in order to find a doctor. Well, of course, they weren't on strike. It is unbelievable. Uh, I'm delighted to say we're joined now by Ben Habib, live in the studio. Ben, uh, welcome back. Former MEP, of course, uh, with the Brexit Party and involved with the Reform Party now. Um, we've got to talk about the migrant crisis, which has gone from kind of bad to worse. In the last week, it seems to have reached kind of peak insanity, doesn't it? From putting people on a migrant barge in, um, in Dorset, only 15 as opposed to 500. So then removing them from the barge because they discovered Legionnaire's yeah. disease, which is something which occurs in many, many different places and it doesn't always involve shutting something down. Um, and I'm told as well that they even tested for it before they put them in there. So God knows what that was about. Um, and then we had the incident at the weekend where there was a, a capsizing of one of the boats, which was massively overloaded with people, 70 people on a, on a dinghy that's supposed to carry 20. Um, no, life, no life belts or life jackets of any kind. We then read this morning in the Times uh, that there was a migrant clash on the side on the Calais side uh, where people were shooting at each other before they even got in the boat I mean you and, know, and these weren't the people smugglers no these were people who wanted to get on the boat right so they've got guns they've got guns so they're coming to Britain uh, possibly carrying guns possibly with ill intent and yet the lefties are saying but we must welcome them all yeah it's a we, humanitarian crisis yeah, we're told yeah. really it's been a very interesting weekend yeah you know normally uh, the migrant crisis kind of just rolls on. Yeah. But there have been a number of really interesting revelations mm. this weekend, one of which is the fact that these people who are seeking to come to the United Kingdom have been armed, mm. clearly have a uh, criminal instinct, if not antipathetic instinct, yes. towards the United Kingdom, mm. number one. But the really big takeaways for me this weekend start on Sunday morning with that boat capsizing yeah. off the coast of France. Yeah. And What's really telling for me, for me from that, is that the whole uh, suggestion that the the French are policing their shores to prevent these people from getting into boats, and that we're right to be paying them hundreds of millions of pounds. It's going to be close on a billion. Yeah. Um, That 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 whole narrative was blown out of the water, forgive the pun, Mm. on Sunday morning. Because what you had was these people coming into the water. The minute they were in the water, they had French naval escort. So the French Navy knew they were about to launch these boats. 
And, and so they, they're just watching them? They were watching them. They followed them for a few minutes when they'd gone about four or five miles, capsized. And then you have British boats, R&LI, coming mm. into French waters to help with the rescue. Fair enough, I get it, people need rescuing. But instead of then taking them back to French shores, which was the nearest point right. of depositing them, right. they brought them back to the UK. Which you would also think under the rules of engagement as, as medics, surely you take people to the, to the nearest point, of point. Relief, don't you? Absolutely. Right. So what that tells me is that there's no genuine attempt being made to police French shores. There's no genuine attempt by the French to honour the deal, that, the terrible deal that Rishi Sunak has done, paying them you know, hundreds of millions of pounds to effectively do that, do that job. Yeah. And we are complicit in this because our own boats went into French waters, picked up these people mm. and brought them back to the United Kingdom. Yes. This is not a problem of us being able to patrol our borders. This is a problem of the British government and our uh, and our uh, and its uh, uh, and and services that report to the British government actually being complicit in aiding and abetting the movement of people across the Channel. Mm. This is much worse than we thought, right. uh, Mike, and it's, and it's now, being revealed. I mean, at least now the, the, those who would suggest that we have to, in, in their words, take our fair share, at least they're beginning to acknowledge that it is a, a global problem because there's no question that there are people coming uh, into Western Europe from North Africa, from points sort of east in places like Afghanistan and Iran and Syria, um, you know. But the point is, is that, you know, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a problem for, for the whole of the European continent. However, you know, it is not some, something that Britain should be solely shouldering and that Britain should not no. be the end of the run, if you like. But this is, this is a problem made by Europe mm. for Europe. Yeah. And they've literally exported the problem to the United Kingdom, yeah. literally. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because they haven't policed their borders. Mm. and Well, they don't and, have any borders, do they? Well, they have territorial I waters. I mean, Schengen sort of tends to suggest that, I mean, we've all done it. Well, that's I mean, I've it. driven from, uh, from France to Italy. There's not even oh, anybody Mike. standing in a booth Sorry, to see who yeah. you are. I was talking about their territorial waters. But you're at the, once you get on shore mm. in Italy yeah. or Greece... You're you, you're effectively on the Calais coast. Yeah. You you know it's a hop and a skip yeah. because there's nothing to prevent you. Right. If they stop Schengen, if they started policing their own internal borders, you would slow this movement down dramatically. Yeah. You would make the people smugglers' job that much more difficult, m markedly more difficult. But the problem starts with Italy and Greece yeah. because they're not enforcing their territorial water rights mm. to prevent entry of these boats illegally mm. into their waters. Yes. That's what they have to do. Right. We have to adopt Operation Sovereign Borders, mm. which is what the Australian government did back in 2013 and worked so well. They boarded these boats that were trying to come to Australia, turned them around and sell them straight back to where they came from, right. deposited them back in Indonesian waters. We could deposit them back in Libyan waters yeah. or wherever they, they took wherever some of them it was. to a designated island. And designated Pacific, islands. And now, the critics will say, yeah, but that costs an awful lot of money. Well, and we we're already sorry, we we're already spending six to seven million a day. Well, let's, let's talk about the money. Mm. Last year, we spent £50,000 per head mm. on housing, feeding, caring, including providing medical care for each migrant that crossed the channel. Mm. 50,000 quid. The French spend £5,000 per annum. Of course, they're going to come to the United Kingdom. They, you know... It, we all know that they're treated incredibly well because yeah. we've seen it. We've seen them, the treatment they get when they, when they board a border force yeah. boat. We've seen what happens when they get to Pimlico, put up in Belgravia yeah. hotels, four-star hotels with Wi-Fi, whether or yeah. not it's perfectly uh, adequate from, yeah. from their perspective. Well, on the Bibby Stock Home, 24-7 canteen. They're open all the time. Taxi know. services, buses eggs, taking eggs you backwards time, and forwards. Used to say in America. I mean, you know, it's unbelievable what's going on. And also, every single European country, bar this country, rejects many, many more asylum seekers than we do. We accept something like 85% of them in the end because they're sitting here for so long that they all get uh, to stay. But in France and in Germany and in Spain and in Italy, the numbers and the percentages are far lower, You're like sometimes as low as 10% and, and below, where the rest are sent home.
Yeah, and what, what, what we're going to see if we don't get a grip of this problem and don't get a grip of it urgently is dystopia yeah. developing not just in our rural, beautiful market towns and elsewhere in the United Kingdom, but right across Europe, mm. actually. They're going to have the problem in spades. Now, I had this morning, I was going, I, uh, can I mention a competing channel? Or? No. No. Okay. We don't mention them, but you can refer to them. Yeah. Well, I was on another show this what morning. What are you doing over there? <laughs> I, I mean, for Sorry heaven's sake, that. did you get lost? <laughs> Well, I was up against a guy from Amnesty International. Yeah. I said, you don't get people crossing the German and Czech borders no. in order to enter Poland. Mm. And, you, and, and you don't. No. You, I, there's no because guess evidence. What? In Poland, they have a much harder regimen. I know people from Poland and they tell me that, you know, if you don't have a job in Poland, you don't get any benefits. You have to get a job. Otherwise, you don't have any money. Absolutely. And they're about to have a referendum, I believe, based upon the U EU's ridiculous policy where they're going to try and impose a number on them of refugees that they must take. The Polish are saying, no, we're going to give it to the people and let them decide whether we want that. And I get the referendum will say, no, I bet you any money. And, and that is absolutely right. That's what we should be doing in yeah. this country. There should be no social safety net. There should be no provisions at 50,000 per head for these people. You know, we keep hearing the mm. government saying this is we're going to deter them from coming. Well, paying 50,000 quid per annum versus the mm. French at five, that's no deterrence. No. That's Absolutely that's not. attracting him into the into the United Kingdom in you know in spades as yeah. I say, the whole thing is falling apart. We need to recognise that our government's part of the problem. We need to recognise that the deal that we've done with France is part of the problem. Yeah. We're actually rewarding them for bad behaviour. Mm. We need to take unilateral British action, which starts as we've discussed on this program before by refusing to allow the boats to pass into our territorial mm. waters in the first well, place. Also, I learned last week that apparently, and this is possible to do, I'm told, because it's less dangerous water. I'm not sure if I agree with that. But apparently the Greeks are now doing this. They're pushing people coming from Turkey because a lot of the Kurds come from from boats in Turkey. A lot of, we understand a lot of the big dirigible dinghies come from there as well. Um, they're physically pushing the boats back into Turkish waters and just going, you deal with it. And, and the that's Turks right. have to because there's nothing else they can do. And that is right. Mm. And if you take that approach in the United Kingdom and the Italians in turn take it and the Greeks in turn yeah. take it and the Turks then are forced to deal with the problem, the Turks in turn will take that approach. Yeah. And you, you will shut down this global illegal mm. migration yeah. that's taking place. Because they're doing it because it's easy. You know, I'm not saying that it's easy for the individuals who are travelling, but it's easy for the, for the smuggling gangs because they know what they're doing. It's a very efficient model. They're incredibly good at it. They know how to put, move people from point A to point B. And they don't care what happens in between. They don't care who dies. As long as they're no. making money, it will, it's like trying to stop drug smuggling. And they're trading you know. on our weak political will. Yeah, they're trading they on the understanding that we haven't got the courage to stand yeah, up to them. Right. And if they're walking around shooting each other in Calais before they get on boats, I mean, what the hell yeah, are we thinking? They, this is not a humanitarian crisis. No. It really isn't, but it will become a humanitarian crisis in this country if we don't stop it from happening. Well, we're going to have dystopia. We yeah. are going to, I predict dystopia. Yeah. You know, we put this barge in Portland, which is a quiet little town, that airfield in Wethersfield. Yeah. You know, we're going to see dystopia right well, across the United Kingdom. I've been Kingdom. talking, and, I've, and I'm in touch with on a regular basis, several groups of people in different parts of the country. There's a group in Bexhill, there's a group uh, at RF Manston, you know, there's groups all over the country who are against the imposition of migrant people coming and staying near their, where they live in their hundreds. It's not, people don't want it. If I, can I make one more point before Please. we finish? That £3.7 billion that we spent mm. on illegal migrants last year came out of the international aid budget. So the point I'd like to make to those who think that people like you and me are perhaps too uh, antagonistic against mm. these illegal entrants is that £3.7 billion that came out of the international aid budget would have been spent not on housing them in the United Kingdom, but on settling countries like Syria, like Libya, mm. like Afghanistan. And that money would have gone a hell of a lot more, would have gone much, much further yeah. in those countries than it does on four-star hotels in the UK. Yeah. So if we can shut the trade down, if we can shut them... Uh, sh shut that crossing of the channel down, yeah. we will be able to use that money more effectively to settle the root cause problems you know, for the benefit of all of Europe. Yeah. We have to get ahead of this problem. The, the idea... And we have to be more like the smugglers, actually. We have to be more ruthless. We have to be less, you know, forgiving. We have to be less uh, compassionate. And we have to just say, no, you're not coming. You're not it's coming. It's that simple. And, 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 
it's cruel to be kind. Yeah. Actually, in the end, that would be the right mm. solution for everyone. Everyone would be better off, including the people yeah. who wish to enter our country. I mean, country. these lefties who say, oh, but we must allow it to happen. So you're actually encouraging people to die in the channel at the hands of these unscrupulous merchants of death. That's effectively what the left are doing. They're going, oh, yeah, they must be allowed to do it. Well, good. So you've got blood on your hands then, I'm afraid. Uh, the government hasn't. Uh, the people who are encouraging it have. Final thought before we leave you. Um, the gender agenda, which we talk about quite a bit. Uh, this trans lobbying group Stonewall is behind gender policy at 30 different NHS trusts, basically, where uh, people are being told if you refer to somebody by the wrong um, pronoun, you might be sacked or possibly suspended. Certainly, uh, you know, taken and given a good talking to. We're also being told that some health authorities will ask for your um, preferred pronoun when you're calling for an ambulance. So when your yeah. leg is hanging off and you call 999, you might get asked whether you're a she or a he. So this, is a, this, this, this has got nothing to do with being nice and kind to no. transgender people. No. This is the promotion of a political ideology starting by hijacking the English language. Yeah. That's where it starts. It's an abuse of the English language. And they do it so that they can shroud their political ideology in a manner that mm. becomes palatable for everyone else, claiming, rather like with the migrants, that actually they're the nice guys. Yeah. They're you know, doing all this that makes sense. Right. But we have to get one thing straight in this country. A man born as a man is a man. A woman born as a woman is a woman. It's a testimony to how idiotic we've become mm. as a country that I should even have to say that yeah. live on air. Oh, I know. It should be... And that you might be in some way in trouble for saying it. I, I might be in trouble. It's now called a controversial view. Well, it's it, not controversial, is it? It's self-evident, right. isn't it? So the minute we acknowledge, as some people do, that if a man identifies as a woman, he is actually a woman... Oh. The minute we do that, we create unintended, ridiculous consequences, exactly. such as the emergency services yes. not acting as emergency right. services, but being more interested in identifying how someone self-identifies. Yeah, I know. Well, it's ludicrous. And I mean, of course, the word, words gender dysphoria are now used as a kind of an excuse for, for this type of behaviour from uh, all sorts of local authorities and public bodies. But gender dysphoria, and I can say this with absolute surety, is a term that describes a sense of of unease, it says here, uh, that a person may have because of a mismatch. However, uh, a diagnosis for gender dysphoria is also included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, according to the American Psychiatric Association. So the American Psychiatric Association calls it a mental disorder. Yeah. Uh, we call it a choice. So if it is a mental disorder, let's just take the Psychiatric Association's w word. Yeah. If it is a mental disorder, why, is the, why are the politicians getting so bad? Why, why is it being promoted yeah. institutionally? Why are children being taught right. that this is normal? I mean, are there any other mental disorders being promoted? Yeah, it's unbelievable, right. isn't it? And our children, and this is the really sinister part of yeah. it, is our children are being hijacked at school. Mm. They're being told that it's perfectly normal yeah. to identify as some other yeah. gender. Actually, the normal state is to identify the sex that you were born in. Yeah, exactly. But normal, of course, is a word you're not supposed to use. That's another controversial word. We're hitting the jackpot here for controversial uh, words. Ben Habib, thank you very much thank indeed. You. Uh, we'll see you again soon. Coming next, we're going to talk to Arabella Skinner from Us For Them. Uh, she's going to tell us why children are once again being left behind, uh, not just in the words uh, of the COVID inquiry, but in the words of all schools as well. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots of you want to talk to me, and we will come to all of you, of course, uh, in very due course, because we're only here for about another half an hour. Let's go very quickly now, though, to Arabella Skinner from Us For Them. She's one of the co-founders of the organisation which looks out for the welfare, of course, of children. And children are very much at the very epicentre, or they should be, of the COVID inquiry. But tra tragically, they're actually not at all, anywhere near it. Uh, Arabella, very good morning to you, or good afternoon to you, I should say. Um, we're still wondering why the COVID inquiry isn't doing what I think an awful lot of parents would like it to do. Why do you think it is? Um, I think it really sums up the problem we have throughout the pandemic and, in fact, the problem we have throughout society, that the issues and concerns of children just simply aren't aren't at the centre of any policy making. Mm. Um, I'd love to come on, Mike, and talk about the fact that we have a wonderful policy that's promoting children or supporting them, but we just don't seem to have that. Um, today, the, the big thing that, that we're 
really worried about is this major campaign you've probably seen from the COVID inquiry called Every Story Matters. Yeah. It's encouraging everyone to um, get involved, tell their story, and it says your story matters, every story matters. But under 18s aren't able to contribute. So they're already saying that actually every story matters, but children's stories don't yeah. And then when you couple that with the fact that we haven't even heard when the module that's going to cover education is going to happen, it definitely won't happen before the start of 2026, um, which obviously is a long, long way off. Do yeah. you have to worry about when we're actually going to get some answers and get, you know, get some serious answers of why children ended up in the mess they did and what we're going to do to make sure that doesn't happen again? Yeah. And also, how confident are you that you'll get to the truth of the matter, which is that actually, technically speaking, the government didn't shut the schools. The government recommended to local authorities that they might want to shut the schools. And then the local authorities, to a large extent, did. But many schools still taught kids from vulnerable um, backgrounds and they also taught kids of key workers. So it wasn't true to say that every school shut down. It was just for the vast majority of parents and children, they couldn't go. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and it's it's a big issue in the fact that it was a ministerial decree when Gavin Williamson stood up and said schools will close. Um, when you go back and you look at some of the reports that the government did at the time, we've seen reports in April 2020 where they were actually surprised by the number of people who didn't go. Right. So 98% of vulnerable children were not in school. Mm. They thought they'd be looking after them and they thought they'd be preparing. And actually the inquiry has just looked, heard the module all about the pre-pandemic planning. It didn't hear from the Department of Education. It didn't ask to talk to Gavin Williams. We know that in Operation Cygnus, which was the pre-pandemic um, flu preparation plan, I think 2016, mm. there were actions for the Department for Education um, to put in place. We haven't, the inquiry didn't, didn't question them, didn't ask them on this. So the very fact that we're going to be waiting you know, three, four years to even talk about education, let's remember they are currently saying education, not children. Yeah. Education, children, childhood is so much bigger than simply education. But we are not, do not seem to be including the questions about children in the way that we should be. So the next module is all about the decision making around lockdown and all the different restrictions we had. Well, why aren't children a core part of that? Mm. We should be asking, well, what, what did we think about rule of six and what that meant for children? Did we think about rule of two? And at the moment, it looks like all of that's going to be parceled up and go, well, we're going to talk about school closures. Right until we we look at it in the future and by then children will have left school and actually no one will be particularly interested but right. the damage will be done i mean i'm very interested for example in if it is the case that say somebody who was 14 at the time the lockdown happened is now 18 giving evidence to a, to a, an inquiry i'd be very yeah. interested to hear from that 18 year old as to what they thought at 14 and what they were feeling and how their brain was working and what they were frightened of and what they were you know worried about that's really important for, for, I think, for our society to know the answer to. I think it's hugely important. And actually, it's not beyond the wit of man to find a way to get around any potential safeguarding issues. Yeah. This is something that we raised with the inquiry oh, six, seven months ago, when they actually started talking about this, saying children need to be involved. And I know other charities have, and they simply haven't done it. it it's really not difficult. Yeah. Um, we're seeing the knock-on effects now. We already heard you know, a big piece in the paper by the Secretary of State yesterday talking about why A-level results need to be tougher um, because university students yeah. are, there was a high dropout rate on university mm. students because so many of them got, got results that perhaps they wouldn't have got in a normal year. And, and whilst that's true, and I think, again, the inquiry should be asking why were we one of the very few countries that cancelled exams for two years? it actually hides a couple of other major, major issues. The first one is lots of children got to the end of their A-levels without actually studying an mm. entire A-level. Imagine you turn up to do biochemistry at university and you've only done 60% of the biology right. A-level and 50% chemistry And you haven't A -level. really even done any of it because you've just got a tick, even though exactly. you know, nobody really And you've never been you in a lab. How are you going to cope with that? You've then missed the hugely important developmental stage of the 17, 18-year-old sixth form where you become so much more independent and you've mainly done that online and you've been stuck inside so you haven't developed independence and those kind of social skills. And a lot of those children have also created, had huge issues around anxiety. And then you're put into a university and suddenly discover that not only are you not able to socialise in the way you thought you were going to be able to, 
that, you're also mainly doing your, your work online. And so a huge amount of this must reflect the education that students got at university yeah. when they're stuck in their rooms having education. So yes, absolutely, A-level marking is an issue and the lack of A-levels is an issue, but it the huge dropout rate we've had at universities hides a multitude mm. of other issues amongst yeah. Absolutely right. Also, isn't it ironic, just to, to finish up, that the word safeguarding doesn't apply to locking kids up, it just applies to them talking about it? Absolutely. And um, one of the things that we absolutely know, we know is that so many safeguarding warnings were, were hidden. Um, if you go through the SAGE minutes, if you go through the DFE minutes, you can see all the way through people were raising concerns way before the decision mm. struck where concerns about the most vulnerable in society and the impact through there. And it's great that people are out there talking now, but not enough people were talking at the time. And another thing the choir should look, listen to and think about is why did people feel they were not allowed to be able to speak out? Yeah, absolutely right. Arabella, keep uh, fighting the good fight. I'm sure uh, you'll get there in the end. Arabella Skinner, co-founder of Us For Them, uh, on why children are still being ignored by the COVID inquiry and why they shouldn't be and why it must not happen. We'll continue with that particular fight, of course, as well, because as we say, oh, they're all very worried about what the effects might be emotionally on a child talking about what happened to them during COVID and during lockdown. You're not worried about what happened to them, though. You're just worried about them talking about it which makes no sense to me at all. Uh, coming up, the world of woke as well uh, as your calls. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.